Here's a top five list of things that I would like an exacting nature with. Number one, the mechanic who balances the airplane wheels so that takeoff and touching down can be as smooth and as safe as possible. I would like some exacting nature with that, wouldn't you? Fair. Number two, Yakos. I don't eat many hot dogs anymore, but when I do, I eat Yakos. I grew up in the Lehigh Valley. Some of you might know this. Um, the name Yako comes from a name that you might be very familiar with, which is Iacocca, as in Lee Iacocca, as in Chrysler, uh, as in when you moved to the Lehigh Valley 70, 80, 90 years ago with a family from Italy and everyone else is Pennsylvania Dutch and they cannot say the word Iacocca, it becomes Yakos. Now, in addition to spawning Lee's career as a, a automobile industry executive, they also are known as the hot dog kings. And like I said, I don't eat too many hot dogs anymore, but I grew up eating these. And to call it a chili dog is is debasing this this wonderful creation. And sorry, vegetarians, but just for a second here, it's this char grilled hot dog that has the perfect amount of mustard, this little nest they create for it, and then a little sprinkle of onions, and then this chili sauce that when it is done in the exact right proportions is just a little piece of heaven in your mouth. And I, I want an exacting Yakos dog. If, if, if there's a little too much of, of anyone or little too little, it, it's not exact and it's not right, okay? Third, radioactive seed implants. When I was in my late 20s and serving a congregation in Florida and my dad, who was approaching 70, flew down and said he had something he wanted to talk to me about and told me that he had colon cancer. I was very grateful that they were able to catch the cancer early and didn't require extensive major surgery. It did, however, require the implantation of radioactive seeds into, let's be delicate here, his lower abdomen to kill the cancer. Now, I don't know exactly. I imagine it's not like a pill where they count out the radioactive seeds one by one by one, but they put in the right amount into him in which they were able to kill the cancer. And no harm was done. I am glad that that was an exact nature. Halfway through spring training. Opening day is coming. That perfect balance. That diamond. 90 feet between the bases. 60 feet 6 inches between home plate and the pitcher's mound. As if it was ordained by holy writ. It cannot be any other. For the game to be what it is. Got to be exact there. And the final one. Fugu. Not familiar with this perhaps. Japanese pufferfish. Blowfish. A delicacy. Which, if it is carved, cut, incorrectly, will, my friends, kill you. I have not had fugu. But I want to have fugu at some point in my life. And I am hoping that the person who carves the Japanese pufferfish is exact. And I will be able to come back and tell you how fugu is. So those are just five things in which I believe we need exactness. The list could go on for me. I'm sure it could go on for you. Here's the thing, though. What I'm about to talk about is from a source, a book that praises things that are inexact. I begin a new message series here today 
called Stories with Soul that is about wisdom from children's literature. And it's inspired by this quote that I think came from C.S. Lewis that says, There is no story worth hearing at eight that isn't also worth hearing again at 80. That in fact, when we scratch the surface of this thing called kids' literature, what we just find there is literature and wisdom. And so the story today is one by Peter Reynolds called Ish. Ish is the story of a kid, a boy named Ramon, who loves art. He will draw me. He will draw you. He will draw this room. He will draw plants and flowers and trees and everything and anything around him. He loves to draw. He loves his art until this one day. When he is at his dining room table creating another masterpiece and his older brother looks over Ramon's shoulder and starts to laugh derisively and sneers. What is that? That doesn't look like what it's supposed to look like. And Ramon becomes obsessed for months about getting his pictures right about getting it right and nothing now that he's got this seed of perfectionism implanted within him nothing ever turns out right and so he does all of these pictures and then he looks at it and it's not good and he crumples them up and he throws them out he is no longer happy he is no longer creating with joy He completes what he is sure of will be his last picture because he's tired of how not right it looks. And he picks up a piece of paper and he throws it away. And in back of him, his little sister Marisol comes around and picks it up. He says, put that down. That's that's garbage. And she says, come with me. And in the midst of his frustration, Ramon follows her into her bedroom. And what Marisol has done has taken all those crumpled up, discarded, garbagey, not right drawings and put them all up like an art exhibit of discarded beauty all around her room. And she said, this, this one's my favorite. What's it supposed to be? (laughs) And he says, well, it's a vase. And she says, well, it's a vase-ish. And this is the start of Ramon thinking Ishley, of getting beyond all those absurd standards of perfectionism and believing we need to do things exactly right if they're going to exist at all in the first place. And because of this, Ramon recaptures his spirit of an artist, thinking Ishley about everything. No longer does it need to be exact, but instead it's the joy of creation itself. The moral of the story is that if we treat our own lives with this ish spirit, we will know creativity, joy, love, belonging. And that gate will be closed to us if we engage our lives from the place of perfectionism, of thinking that we need to get everything exactly right for it or even ourselves to exist in the first place. There is an old ancient definition of sin, sin which for me has never had anything at all to do with who you are, what your identity is, or who you sleep with. None of that 
kind of nonsense. This definition of sin was simply rendered as missing the mark. You know, we aim for things in this life and we don't hit them. And sometimes that is, I think, an appropriate understanding of our falling short. But here's the thing. I'd like to add another definition of what sin is. Perhaps it is the pressure of always thinking that we must hit the mark. The pressure of believing that unless it is or we are not right, and we do not deserve creativity, joy, love, belonging, living under the pressure of thinking that unless we hit the mark, we are not worthy or we are not lovable. Many of you know, perhaps all of you know this face by now. Haman Nabe, a 13-year-old who a little over a week ago went missing. And then a little under a week ago, we learned that he had taken his own life. Unlike in this era when so much is expected of us to be able to react Immediately, I'm going to say words that can feel foreign to our ears at times, foreign to my ears. I don't know. I don't know exactly happened, and I certainly don't know why. We do know this, the basic facts. That Cayman, a student at an elite secondary school, got a note that he was running behind. He owed an assignment. He left his house. And that he went out behind that house and took his own life. I am not here or looking to blame anyone. Not the school. They didn't intend this. Certainly not Cayman's parents. There's no such thing as a perfect parent, right? We all know that, whether we are one or we've had them. That would be cruel. And certainly, absolutely, I do not wish to blame Cayman. Any of that kind of creation of cause or blame would be projection. The kind of projection that so many of us engage in. We want to keep our own selves safe. Like this can't happen to us. It can happen to people I know. But the thing is, why this has reverberated with so many of us and so many of you, and especially those of you who are parents, is because this happened here. This happened close by. I know people who know his family. This rocked many of us. I'm not interested in blame. I am interested and want to pay attention to why so many of us are paying attention to this story. To this 13-year-old life that will not take any more breaths. To pay attention to why this sadness speaks to us so deeply is also to pay attention to what Cayman's life represents to us, even if we don't know many of the particulars about it. Our anxieties, our fears, our concerns, our doubts, our sadness. Because really, in the end, all we know is this is that Cayman made a judgment over his own life that for whatever tragic, awful reason, he felt he was not good enough and he was missing the mark. 
And awfully he felt he did not deserve to be in this life anymore. What has inspired me in this past week, and it's come out of your words. I've seen it on Facebook from some of you I've talked with. I've heard parents talking to their children about the pressure to excel. That is very much a part of where we live. We all know this. The pressure to achieve. And the fact that there is, or at least ought to be, a source and a reality of belovedness and belonging that is bigger, must be bigger, desperately must be bigger than our achievement or our failure. I've heard this deep concern voiced over the last week. What happens to us when the water drains out of the success sea in which so many of us swim? This is a part of life in Chester County. may not be part of your life particularly. Hopefully, actually, you're cultivating values that counter this story. But it is very much a story of where we are. Wealthiest county in the state, one of the top 25 most wealthy counties in the entire nation. We live in a culture of success and achievement and striving. And sometimes that's absolutely wonderful. And we also know it comes with a tremendous shadow side. And so maybe this is our deepest concern. What holds us when we fail? What holds us? What lets us know we are still beloved and we still belong when we fall on our faces or feel that we have not merited the ability to earn love any longer? What holds us, nurtures us? gives us refuge when we feel we have failed. I have a, a very dear and old friend of mine who I talked to this past week and was uh, familiar with the story of Cayman's death. And this friend, like myself, has a life filled with achievements and a certain amount of success and certainly academic success. And this friend of mine, like myself, has had real and ongoing struggles with depression, with mental health and mental illness. And I'm not diminishing my own struggles in this life to say that my friend's struggles have been far more difficult than my own. There have been real times in my friend's life when he almost did not make it. Because my friend, for all of his incredible achievements and for all the awards and for all the great things that he has done, the defining struggle of my friend's life has always been this. Is he really beloved simply because he's alive? Is he really beloved in spite of, beyond all the success or even the failures? And the doubt that I've heard my friend articulate many times in the period that we've known each other is that if he stops succeeding, will he somehow stop meriting his place among the living? This is why I think so many of us are paying attention to Cayman's death. What holds us in this life when we fail? And not just makes it okay, but in fact expected. 
that we will fail. That we will fall. I mean, if there's one thing I know as I approach my 45th birthday, one thing that has finally gotten through my thick skull and even more the thickness of my heart muscle, is that failure is just baked into the cake. I've learned this lesson over and over again in my life, and finally it's sinking in. I've learned this lesson from those who teach Aikido. Some of you might know that in Aikido, the martial art, which is based not upon meeting aggression with our own aggression, but redirecting the aggression. It looks almost like a dance. Well, the first thing they tell you in Aikido, I've known people for whom this is their spiritual practice. The first thing you need to do is to learn how to fall because you are going to fall. And if you don't accept that you're going to fall, then you're going to get injured. Then you're going to get hurt. And then you're not going to be able to grow. There's even a, a kind of translation of this phrase from Aikido that roughly translates into learning to fall gracefully. Learning to fall gracefully. I love that. I love it so much, especially because it's not really something that is taught to us. You know, we, we, we live in a, in a lot of frames that are very much about success and very much about striving. Not just secular, also sacred. We hear about your best life now. Every single moment, your best life now. The best it's ever been, now. And then then, even better then. We hear about the purpose-driven life. We hear about achieving our goals and maximizing our efficiency and increasing your utility and upgrading your functionality. We swim in this stuff all the time, right, folks? If we just pay attention to it, it's there, urging us on. And like I said, I have nothing against goals. I have many goals for myself right now. But how do we hold those goals in such a way that they don't become idols? You might know, if you've been around for a little while, that I am a very, very big fan of Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. And if you are at all a fan of Bruce, and if you're not, well, let's talk. I can share the, <laughs> share the gospel with you. It's good news. So Bruce and the band split up as a band in the 80s when they were still relatively young guys, relatively young. And they weren't together for about 15 years until the end of the 1990s, into the 2000s. They had this huge reunion tour when they got together when they were not so young anymore. And it changed them. It changed their relationships. It changed how they received the news in just a few years after 2000 when some of them started to die off and they started to have to say goodbye. So on that reunion tour in 2000, they closed their concerts with the song called If I Should Fall Behind, which can be read on one level as kind of a promise between two people who are married. And it is that, but it's also more. Because what Bruce and the band did is they turned this song, about six minutes or so, into a declaration of their interdependence, of their being there for each other and with each other. And Bruce, who most often always sings the lead, shared the vocals and each member of the band who sings each took their turn doing a chorus their declaration that if any of them should fall behind they will wait for each other that failure yes and falling is baked into the cake of this life 
I'm about to share with you what I think are my least favorite words when put together in a phrase in the English language. Failure is not an option. If failure is not an option, my friends, you know what else is not an option? Forgiveness is not an option. Redemption, not in some otherworldly sense, but in this worldly sense, redemption is not an option. Grace is not an option. How terribly alone the kind of universe it is that we inhabit if we think that failure is not an option. Let's remember that it was only after, and I can throw this piece away now, that Ramon had crumpled it up and, and hated himself, representing I'm not an artist anymore, and chucked it out, that Marisol picked it back up. Someone can pick it back up and bring it to me if you want to. You know, we're all playing along here. Wow. I am totally alone. Thank you. See, it's that moment. It's that moment when he can fail and be open about it. That all those wonderful relational realities of grace and compassion and connection can be a part of his life again. This is how he learns the power of ish. That he can create, he can belong, even if it's far from perfect. When we open up space for ish in our lives, we can recognize something else. I've shared this on Facebook. I've seen others. You share it on Facebook. I love this one so much. It's the individualized thought bubble, so they're not saying it. Isn't that great? All these people really seem to have it together, and I still have no idea what's going on. We see the power of what happens when I can raise my hand when I think that. And anyone else who cares to join me in that right there. And we see, wow, isn't it amazing? We all have no idea what's going on. And we're all so terribly alone in that. But we're not. This is the kind of confusion that creates connection and compassion. This is the kind of thing that Wendell Berry, the great poet of the terrain of the soul, who moves against so often, so deeply, so beautifully, so heartfully against the master narrative that controls our society of always upward and more and mobile and succeeding. When he says it may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. The impeded stream is the one that sings. This is ishness. I've been blessed by a measure of ishness in my life in the past year. Some of you know that... Last summer, I took a sabbatical, nine weeks away from a ministry that I absolutely love here and nine weeks that was absolutely essential if I was going to continue in any heartful, meaningful way with my ministry here. The last four years or so of my ministry before last summer were amazing ones, challenging ones, growth-oriented ones for Wellsprings and ones that were very stressful. And because I have a thick head and sometimes I have even a thicker heart, my response habitually to struggle or difficult times will be to just keep working my ass off even harder. And it created with me a real awful sense of unkindness towards myself. And also, as I've tried to acknowledge with those of you with whom this has happened, sometimes unkindness towards some of you as well. 
I went into my sabbatical with a few clear goals, one of which was to get back in touch with my body, which is the first thing to go when I'm stressed. And so I did a lot of yoga on my sabbatical. And some of you know this basic thing called tree pose, you know, basic tree pose. It's really elemental. You know, if I was in, I guess I can hike this up here. See how long I can hold this. But tree pose is like a real basic thing we hear a lot about in yoga groups. And I had started to attend yoga three, four, five times a week and really was getting back in touch with my body and the breath and all these other kind of wonderful things. And I got a private teacher and the private teacher was working with me, all these basic poses and not just about the poses and the form themselves, but but really about paying attention to what was going on inside, bringing this kind of contemplative, mindful approach as well, too. And it was about halfway through my sabbatical when it's like, you know, the ice was just starting to soften, even in the middle of summer. And the stuff was starting to come up and I was starting to pay attention to what was really there and the ways in which I was not treating myself all that well. And at one point, halfway through this practice with my teacher, she said, take a tree pose. Basic. I've heard these words probably again, three, four, five times a week. And I looked at her like, hmm, tree pose. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, (laughs) I'm like, oh, yeah, duh. And at that moment, I had a choice. I could have engaged in the same thing that I had been engaging in so often during my life, which is to get angry at myself or how stupid I was, how inadequate I was, how I would never get it. I could have done that. Those are well-worn grooves within me, people. Or I could have done the other thing that I did, which is just start laughing. I mean, I started laughing. I started cackling. I started laughing so much I fell over. And at this point, because my teacher is a really good teacher, she says, why don't we sit for meditation just to kind of end the practice right here? And I just kept cackling, giggling. Something was bubbling up from within me that needed space. So, yes, it was not my best yoga practice ever, but you know what it was? It was my best yoga-ish practice ever. Because that's really what the practice is supposed to be about. Finding soft strength. Finding ways of moving more easily through this life. Finding ways of freeing ourselves from the knots in which we can tie ourselves. Ways in which we can be simply good enough. What I learned from that, and I continue to pursue yoga to this day. What I learned from there, and I learned from others who hold their goals lightly and heartfully is that it's really not about the goals themselves. It's about holding the right goals in the right ways. Holding them ishly, with more kindness, more lightness. And this is one of the things we talk about in our core beliefs here at Wellsprings. We can experience God without being able to define God. This is not theological wishy-washiness. This is theological-ishness. What it's honoring is this. Ancient traditions talk about it all the time. We don't see it in their dogma very much. It's the prohibitions against idolatry, which, yes, can be literalized and turned into a fundamentalized form and made a form of violence against others. But the prohibition against idolatry is essentially this. You cannot capture this thing, this experience, That is at the heart of life. We cannot capture it. We can only experience it. 
or savor it. We cause ourselves so much harm in this life when we objectify our lives and objectify other people's lives. Turn them or ourselves into things to be manipulated, controlled, turned into objects. This is the meaning of ish that Ramon gets. He's not there to capture anything anymore. That's not what art is about. He learns what so many spiritual teachers have said over and over again through the centuries, which is that it's not so much what we're looking at. It's how we're looking at it. It's the perspective that we hold. So that we don't lock ourselves down, but instead set ourselves free. Got an extra taste of this, and yes, I use that intentionally, that word, yesterday on what was Pi Day. Pi to ten digits at twice times tomorrow, yesterday. Now, um, I, I know because I looked it up that pi is the ratio of the circumference of the circle to its diameter. <laughs> How often do I refer to that? Not at all. That's why I looked it up. And uh, Lee and I, our intern, who herself has had tremendous, you know, academic success over her life, she and I were joking and comparing this past week about how awful our quantitative scores were on our graduate record exams. So I don't spend as much time with math as I probably should, but I take a lot of inspiration from pi, not just from the pi, but from that limitless number. It goes on and on and on. As a writer said wonderfully, so many people posted things and pictures of actual pie, eating pie, yes, but about 3.14 on, on, on. Itself said, pie is beautiful because it makes infinity approachable. I like to think of our lives as this, to use another kind of uh, geometric metaphor. Our lives as asymptotic lines. Approaching the goals that we strive for, but knowing that we can never fully reach them. Not because of our own inadequacy, but if what we're really aiming for is worthwhile of aiming for in the first place, it's inexhaustible. It just invites us over and over and over again, keep trying. Because this is an unfinished life. On an unfinished planet, in an unfinished universe, if we can recognize this, we can know that this day, we're not asked to be flawless. We're not asked to capture anything. We're just asked to be as good as we can be, which may be a lot, may be a little. So today, my friends, may you live ishly. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of ish, of creativity, form and formlessness, the always growing, always inexhaustible capacity of this life. May we recognize that this day we are an unfinished being. May we see that as invitation. May we see our unfinishedness as joy. May we go and create and be created. Amen.